Well, good morning, everyone. Just pass it to the next person. Incredible weather last night. You can either hold it or you can. It's like that every day of the year here. Can I put it in here? Uh, Uh, I can't do that. Well, this is going to be an interesting session this morning. I think they all have been, but uh, I'm particularly excited about this one because (laughs) what we've seen over the last few years uh, with ASSIS, which is over two decades old now, how many of you knew that? ASSIS has been around for a long time. It constantly evolves, it's it's exponentially. I'm good. Okay. All right, guys on the other side, don't get to hear this part. Sorry. Okay. So stop using that and we'll figure it out. This is a Thanks, Kevin. Um, So I'm going to be talking to you about CDMS, essentially. And what we're going to be talking about is using CDMS for some special areas of interest, being universities and Native American tribes. Unfortunately, I don't have time to teach you how to use CDMS in this 20-minute presentation, um, nor do I have time to go over every hurdle you might face. But we can talk about a few of them. And bear with me, since we don't have visual aids, I'm going to be talking through a lot of the things I might have shown you. So if you don't know what CDMS is, it stands for Comprehensive Data Management Systems. And FEMA has a great definition for it. Kind of just in summary, it's a tool used to integrate your data um, into HAZIS, thereby getting uh, enhanced inventory and therefore results. Well, why would we want to use CDMS? Um, Basically, it helps us get beyond that level one out-of-the-box analysis. And with that, eventually we get uh, better inputs, which is going to lead to better results. That helps us better identify the risk in our communities um, and helps us better prepare. HASIS has a great base of data in it, but since we have CDMS, which is this great tool, um, it's a great opportunity to maybe update some things. We know that the 2010 census just came out. So that's a good opportunity of how we could use CDMS to uh, help the model model give us better results. So let's get into our first case study, which is the University of South Carolina at Beaufort. We did a hazard mitigation plan for the university. And basically, what we needed to do was figure out, well, what is in HAZIS? And what we found, and there's several ways you could do this. You can look on the data CDs. You can create a study region, view your inventory. Um, or you could query it in CDMS. And what we found is that colleges are represented as a single point in HAZIS. But if you want university-level results, 
one single point really isn't telling you much. That one single point represents one building type. I think you're getting the idea here. So if you want a university, you need to go in and update each building or the buildings that you're interested for the entire campus. This was a slide for visual reference that showed um, all the building points. So just pretend it's up there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, so one kind of best practice that I found is that you can go into CDMS, query what you're looking for. In my case, it was schools. And you can export that data. And you don't have to do that. You can go directly into CDMS. The reason why I like to export it is because you then have a template. And you know exactly what CDMS is asking for. You're not going to waste time looking for something that CDMS doesn't care about. Um, and again, it's in the format that CDMS, CDMS wants, thereby helping your validation go a little bit smoother. So once you have all your fields that CDMS is asking for, the next thing you need to say is, well, what's required here and what's just kind of optional? And there's several things that are required. A hazardous ID, the building type, the design level for the flood and earthquake. So then you kind of need to take that one step further and say, well, why is Hazus asking for that? And what am I looking for? So for example, if I'm not interested in the flood model, if I don't have any flooding issues, maybe it's not worth my time to go collect the foundation type. And at that point, you can kind of go with um, your defaults or probably better than using the defaults would be applying an assumption to your study region apply something that is applicable. So I like to use soil type as a good example. It's probably soil type D for most of your study areas. We can easily find out what the soil type is um, in your study area and apply that to our study region. And in order to get the required information, don't forget to refer to that CDMS data dictionary. And to understand what the model's asking for and what you're going to get in return, make sure you look at those technical manuals. So I'm going to go through two kind of hurdles that we face. Like I said, I don't have time to go through all of them, but I think these are kind of some good examples of how you really need to think about what you're doing as you do these data updates. So the first one is building type. And for general building type, that's required for all the models. And then they say things like wood, masonry, steel, concrete, etc. Well, I thought um, initially, I'm like, well, this will be really easy. I can just look at a picture, figure it out. It's no problem. Well, as I started to look at the Hazus definition of what that actually was, I realized they didn't want me to just look and say, that's a brick building. They really wanted me to identify what the makeup and the structure of that building was, which makes sense. I mean, Hazus is a model that tells us how our buildings are able to withstand a hazard. So you need to tell it what the construction of your building is. OK, that's fine. So eventually we did that, but um, it did take some time because that's building science is not my background. So luckily, um, universities have some great facilities managers, and those people will become your best friends if you're doing some sort of university update. Um, you also may have people in your office that can help with that sort of thing. And I think it's just a good point. If that's not your specialty, don't try to do it. Find someone who can help you. Looking at the uh, specific building types, we have specific building types for hurricane and earthquake. Um, for the hurricane model, there's kind of two major factors that lead to your results. It's the specific building type, how the building's constructed, all those building attributes, and the location of the essential facilities. So that's just kind of an indication of how important getting that building, specific building type right is for your results. Again, we don't want to update this data with garbage, garbage in, garbage out. So if you're not sure, maybe it's better to go with what's already there. Um, 
kind of a limitation we found is that in CDMS, we couldn't update that uh, building-specific type for Hurricane. In fact, there wasn't too much we could do for Hurricane at all, which we found to be a great limitation working in South Carolina. Uh, the earthquake model. Looking at those specific boning types, the earthquake model is uh, very complex. It's probably the most developed of all the models. So when we get into something like reinforced masonry and unreinforced masonry, I'm like, well, how am I going to figure this out? So I go to an engineer in my office, and I'm like, I need to figure out if this building's reinforced or unreinforced. How do I know? And he's like, do you have a drill? I'm like, nope. Um, he's like, well, what you need to do is drill a hole in the building, and if you hit metal, it's reinforced. I'm like, I don't really think that's a good option. <laughs> so he's like, well, we could hire an outside firm. They essentially use a stud finder to detect if there's metal in the walls, making it reinforced. Okay, this is a you know limited project budget. I, I don't have that kind of resources. He's like, well, okay, I guess we're going to have to get creative. So we kind of dug through some old stuff, and we were able to find uh, basically the original building plans. And some of these buildings dated back to the 1800s. So that was pretty impressive <laughs> to be able to find something like that. But I mean, the point is you may have to get creative with some of these issues um, in order to kind of solve the, the mystery. The next thing that may come to you as pretty intuitive but may cause you some stress is foundation type. Um, so, all right, from a picture, you think, well, I can probably get most of these. But in actuality, you probably can't. Um, the imagery that's out there, with the exception of that pictometry stuff we saw yesterday, that stuff's pretty awesome, and you can get probably most of the foundation types through that. But just using something like Google Earth or Google Earth Pro, that's not really going to get you your foundation, particularly for the tricky ones, like does it have a basement or does it have a crawl space? And again, we don't want to make these assumptions if we aren't sure. One thing that we help to do, um, again, just not being building science people, is we created these basically like a guide, and it had a picture of each of the foundation types. So we went and did site visits, and as we were doing these site visits, I didn't have my building people with me, but I could look at this document and say, oh, yep, that's definitely a pile foundation, or that's definitely a pier foundation, which really helped us to make sure we were getting our data correct. Um, after you go through the update process, always make sure your, your data is there. And just to kind of uh, summarize all these issues that I've been talking about and just uh, bring home the essential facilities update, what we have is that uh, you want to export CDMS information, and that gives you what I'm calling like a CDMS template. It's in the format that CDMS is going to accept. I've I used to have all kinds of errors with CDMS. Using this template method, um, it's cut down on that tremendously. Also, if you're doing a university-level analysis, you're definitely going to need to update your buildings. doesn't necessarily have to be CDMS. You could also do user-defined, but again, that's looking at your tech technical manuals, understanding what you're going to get back. You have very limited results with a user-defined analysis. You get your full suite of results with CDMS. Uh, we found that the building site visits were crucial, but you also have to realize that uh, we had, you know, each campus had maybe 10 or 20 buildings. If you're working in a large community trying to do an update for hundreds of buildings, doing a site-by-site -site visit is probably not going to be an option. Consider your team. You definitely want to surround yourself with a good team. Let people who are good at what they do do that. Don't mess with it. Let them be good at what they do. You be good at what you do. Understand your inputs and outputs, knowing the model. Uh, be cautious of the limited hurricane attributes that you can update through CDMS. And again, consider the study area and the number of buildings and um, what you can do. How are we doing on time? Okay. 
So the last one is a Native American building count update. And this one goes a lot faster because we don't have to worry about anything as far as the building is constructed. The only thing we have to worry about is our occupancy. So basically, determine where your study area is in the census blocks, and then you're going to get data from your whoever you're getting your data from, be it your community or if you're a consultant, you're getting it from your client. And you can use some GIS tools to kind of do some intersections and figure out which of those buildings is in which census blocks, and then it gets complicated. Because of those blocks, you need to determine what their occupancy is. And not just their occupancy, their specific occupancy. So for example, there's res one, res two, res three, res three A, B, C, the list goes on and on. I mean, I don't, there's probably 40 some categories. So you need some pretty detailed information if a building count update is going to work. I was very lucky in the data that we received from the Seminole Tribe of Florida because it would say something like multifamily unit housing, three stories, 22 units. I can categorize that pretty easily with the HAZUS, um, with the HAZUS definitions, but it was tedious. Remember, I have to do this for every building, and I had probably close to 3,000 buildings that I needed to update, so I had to go do it for each one and by block. So for every single block, I'm telling it how many res one are there, how many res two, et cetera, et cetera. Um, once we, we did the building count update, this would have actually been a good slide to show, but what we found is our original information has this. I thought it actually might be blank. I had no idea what I was gonna find for a tribal area, and it wasn't too far off. There was a total of uh, 1,600 buildings about in the Hollywood Reservation, and when we updated it, we had about 1,850. So not too far off. I mean, that's 350 off. Um, there were some substantial changes more on the classifications. For example, it might say residential, where it might say res one, and in the initial data, there was maybe three buildings. Um, but then on the res three, it said there were zero of those, and when we actually got there, there was more like 20 in the actual data. So I can pretty much stop there. I guess just one more kind of tie it all together is for the uh, building count update. Be prepared that it may be tedious. Make sure it's worth your while, that you have good data, um, and that you're gonna be able to make that connection between the HAZA specific occupancies and the data that you receive. That's it. Our next speaker is going to actually going to have two speakers. Uh, Stephanie, uh, <laughs> Stephanie Rouse and James Mobby both going to do there. One of the things that HASIS users have been looking at over the years is specific scenarios. You know, what happens if this exact event occurs? Stephanie's going to take it a different direction and start looking for trends, I believe. So, here we go, Thank you. So we were sitting around the Maricopa County Flood Control District, and I'm sorry, they, they actually had planned on coming with me today. Um, they weren't able to get travel funds to come up here, so they said, okay, you go do it. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> so we were sitting around the Flood Control District, and the director of the Public Works Department came in and said, I have a vision that in five years, we're going to have no flood risks whatsoever in the county. Find a project to help me figure that out. We're like, well, 
Alrighty. <laughs> so I looked over to Tim Murphy at the Flood Control District Public Works Department and I said, do you know how to do this? He goes, no. He looked at me and said, do you know how to do this? No. I said, okay, good. We're starting in a good spot. So he said, hey, I know. Let's look at those new FEMA wrist map thingies. I'm like, okay. All right, let's, let's start with some of the FEMA risk map things. He goes, yeah, that should hopefully tell us about the risk because he's like, how can we uh, potentially determine and reduce all the flood risk in the county if we don't know what it is and how to quantify it and measurement and uh, understand exactly what he meant by flood risk because he didn't define that. He just came in and said, okay, do this flood risk thing. And then uh, just as the director was leaving, he said, oh, by the way, you've only got four months. Oh, all right, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> four months, all right, we can think of something to do in four months. Uh, so he said, all right, so let's look through some of the risk map current products and figure out what's going on. So he said, okay, let's start with some depth grids. I said, all right, well, first let's pick some pilot areas. Okay, okay, pilot areas. So we decided on three particular areas within the county, and the idea was that these were pilot areas. So it's not necessarily where the intent was to look at the results in terms of the dollars or savings or anything like that, but maybe to identify some trends that as we roll up from some pilot areas inside the county, we can see some other information um, throughout the different flooding parts of Maricopa County that could let us know if there's any particular things we could focus on to reduce risk inside the county. So we said, okay, let's start with some depth grids for some of the risk map products. And he said, hey, what about them probability grid things? I'm like, okay, let's do some probability grid things. So understanding and visualizing the risk over a 30-year mortgage. So like, oh, okay. So not only are we understanding our risk, trying to find new ways to quantify and express it, we're also talking about different ways to visualize the answers um, so we can communicate the information. So we're like, good. Well, so how should we uh, start this? I said, well, you know, we really need to, in these pilot areas, look at probably capturing all the building information so we can run it through Hazus. He said, oh, good idea. Let's go ahead and capture every single building in every single pilot area. I'm like, four months? Okay. <laughs> Sounds good to me. And then uh, afterwards, we're like, hey, you know, these things magically become the areas of potential mitigation interest, which are more the buzzwords for the risk map stuff. So as you saw the presentations from Shane and from everybody before, people are starting to do these different things in their presentation. They just haven't used the right buzzwords yet to say that these are risk map products that they're doing so they can get that CTP funding. So you're doing it. You just need to add the extra little buzzwords in there so that everybody knows what you're doing. And he said, okay, so I, we've kind of gone through the risk map things. He says, I want to do some things that aren't in risk map. Let's add those in too. All right. So in addition to the, to the building points, he said, well, we want to do the full building footprint. And luckily in these pilot areas, we have a lot of elevation certificates. So I want you to add in all that information. I'm like, okay. And uh, the assessor is going to give us everything to update it. We're like, okay, sounds good. And then he said, you know, this isn't, this isn't, this is good. This gives us a picture, but in order to understand risk, we also want to figure out how our drainage regulations and guidance potentially could be impacted in this area. We're like, oh, all right. Because the Flood Control District doesn't do drainage regulations. And by drainage regulations, this is the permitting side of the flood control process, where as an applicant comes in with a building permit, they tell them exactly how high and how much freeboard they need to have in their building structures um, above the floodplain. And currently in Maricopa County, the requirement is in a detailed study area, you have to have one foot above the water surface elevation. And in a zone A or approximate area, you need to have three feet above the ground. So the idea was, well, we're, we're looking at risk inside the county, trying to figure out if, uh, you know, how we can quantify this. What happens if we change the drainage regulations? Is that going to have an impact? 
And can we measure it somehow? Like, you know, I bet we can run some scenarios with Hazus to see if we can get any kind of quantification of the exposure changes if we play with different drainage regulations inside the county. They're like, yeah, you know, people have talked about this, but everyone says it's not going to make any difference. I said, well, you know, these are small pilot areas. Let's give it a go and see what happens. And so, so we've got all these things. We've got the risk map products, a few extras, including these what-if scenarios with the drainage regulations, really in the goal of these pilot areas to look for the trends, not necessarily to look at the absolute results, to see if when we roll it up to a large area, Maricopa County is 9,000 square miles of, uh, of county, so the size of some states. So we didn't want to run it, you know, at the whole county scale. So these three pilot areas, one's about nine square miles, one's about seven square miles, and one is just 100 acres. Um, it covers a variety of different uh, building types throughout the county. So we've got a nice planned community built in the 90s. Everything's beautiful, pink tin roofs, you know, the little tile roofs. Everything looks the same. We've got an area of North Phoenix, which has very large lots and very expensive homes, but also horse barns, chicken coops, dog, you know, houses, any trailers out there. And then we have uh, an area on the far west side of Phoenix, which, uh, shall I say, is not a planned community. <laughs> There's an excessive amount of mobile homes and some very uh, exciting uh, structures and, and things that are out there that we didn't quite know what they were. Um, and in the end, you're like, well, you know, we've got areas of mitigation interest. You know, let's also just throw in that benefit cost thing. Like, all right, <laughs> we'll just throw it in. We've got four months. We'll just throw it all in there and see what we got. So he's like, when do you want to start? I said, well, how about tomorrow? Tomorrow's good. All right, uh, maybe we can get that done. So we went through and we decided, well, you know, we've got uh, to collect all this information. Uh, how are we going to do this? Well, I think the best way to do it is actually to partner your county's building inspectors with our engineers, get you all out in the field, and start looking at uh, all the buildings and structures. You know your area. You know the best way to visit everything in the neighborhood and make it to Carl's Jr. at lunch and then make it back out again. So that's what they did. And if, but you don't want to send engineers out in the field by themselves to capture hazardous information without a tool. So we got them a little tough book with a GPS, a little camera, a little program so that when they type in uh, whatever the structure type that they're looking at the building, behind the scenes, it'll make the hazardous codes for us. So when it comes back, we can actually slurp it in as we need. So they had a lot of fun, wandered around, got chased by lots of dogs and neighborhood associations. Um, you know, everybody's following the flood control truck going, oh, what's going on here? The inspectors resisted trying to do permitting while they're out there. They did run into one building that they are going to come back and visit later because the uh, flood wall or the, the wall didn't have drainage like it was supposed to. Instead, someone had put mirrors up on the wall to simulate holes. and So they're going to come back to that one. <laughs> <laughs> for uh, information. So now there would be a couple of cool slides of the depth grids. The engineers actually, we got back to the office, they're like, oh, I love this depth grids because Maricopa County has some very interesting flooding. These areas were not traditional riverine flooding. We have two areas that kind of have distributed flow. One of the areas we selected is actually a zone AH, so ponding information. Um, developing probability and depth grids for uh, multi-years for ponding area is very exciting. <laughs> not something that we had planned on. In addition, these nesses weren't necessarily new updated models. We were working in 1970s models with uh, current modeling and trying to tie them all together to make a uniform uh, depth grid, which is very exciting. Um, as far as trends go in this county, if we expand the pilots, Maricopa County is full of alluvial fans. 
I'm going to be very excited to see how we're going to handle building depth grids on alluvial fans for multiple return periods in the future. So there could be more interesting things coming out of this particular county. The only thing we don't have is coastal. All right, so when we actually get to the hazardous information, which I'm going to switch over to James to talk a little bit about what we decided to do for the hazardous runs. Now we got all this cool building stuff, all these great depth grids that came in. And do you want to talk? Or? I'll let you. Uh-oh. to talk to you about four different projects, but I think that's a little bit aggressive, and since they changed things up on us, I think we'll change it up too. <laughs> so what we want to do is really have more of an interactive discussion with you. I'm going to talk a little bit about one project that we recently completed at the Polis Center, and since we don't have visuals to go with this, I am going to encourage you to stop me if you want some more explanation. And then Brooke is also going to talk about a project that we partnered with GEC on. So a few months ago, we, as many of you also did, we participated in an early demonstration project for RiskMap. So we tried to do kind of an innovative assessment of AAL in the Lower White River watershed, which you can clearly see from the slide. <laughs> so what we wanted to do was um, assess the AAL with level two data for a discovery project. So I'm shuffling through my notes and trying to look at slides at the same time here. Um, I'll tell you just kind of briefly what the steps were that we used to do this. Um, in the first step, we merged the UDF results from a number of local plans that we have from the Polis Center. We've done approximately 72 of the 92 counties in Indiana and we've done level two UDF analyses for these counties. So we had the data. We had a nice repository of local data. And we merged these results into the Lower White River watershed. It consists of approximately 10 counties and is pretty large. It's more than 1,600 square feet. In our second step, we clipped these results to the 500-year floodplain. And then we loaded the data for the UDF, and we used CDMS to update the general building stock data. Finally, we modeled each return period. We did the 50, the 100, the 200, and the 500. And we did each model individually using the same settings as the 2009 AAL study. So let me actually pull this up so I can see my notes here. Okay. 
So we use two different methods to do this. In the first method, we used the revised 2009 AAL formula, which was the formula that excluded the two in the five year. Um, here's the formula. <laughs> uh, and just a note that this formula works for both the UDF and the GBS analyses. In our second method, this was about as innovative as we've gotten at Polis. We partnered with a uh, mathematics professor at Indiana University, Dr. Bill Cross, who really knows his stuff because he came to our first meeting with a t-shirt that said fractions are cool. <laughs> so we knew we could trust him because <laughs> fractions are cool. But what Dr. Cross did was that he validated the 2009 AAL formula by developing a log normal model and he used the individual return periods as his results. So I would love to be able to show you our graphic here, and I'd really love to be able to tell you more about his log normal model, but it's way over my head. But as I said, we could trust him. He's a brilliant mathematician. And what we found was pretty interesting. The two methods were very, very similar. There was only about, on average, a 7% range of error, 7 to 10% or so. So in the table that you'll see when you actually get our presentation, you can see that the Dr. Cross's log normal model was only slightly higher than the 2009 revised AAL formula. Um, the big difference was the results from the UDF compared to the G GBS. And of course, we know that the UDF is always more accurate. But it was only 25% of what the GBS estimated. So for example, um, for the 100-year flood, we got approximately $56 million in loss from the GBS results and only about 10 from the UDF. So like I said, you know, we expected that, but it was such a significant difference that we were a little surprised by that. But again, the two methods validated each other and we realized that the formula is good, the issue is using GBS as opposed to UDF. Any questions yet? Okay. I'm going to let Brooke talk a little bit about the project that we worked with GEC on. And then if we have some more time, I'll talk about one of our international projects. Thank you, Laura. Uh, today I'm going to talk about a project. Do I have your notes? Absolutely. Oh. We were given very strict instructions yeah. not to touch any buttons. So. <laughs> I don't want to mess that up. Thank you. Um, so, um, GEC uh, teamed up with Polis to um, work on a project for the Tulsa District uh, U.S. Army uh, Corps of Engineers, uh, where we modeled over 2,000 riverine miles of the Oklahoma River, I'm sorry, the Ar Arkansas River and Red River basins throughout Oklahoma, Arkansas, uh, some parts of Kansas, Louisiana, and even Texas. Um, Models were developed in HEC-RAS uh, for using steady and unsteady state um, hydraulic methodologies. Um, four frequency flood events were, were calculated, the 10, 50, 100, and 500 year. Um, these models and the resulting economic damage assessment throughout this area uh, will eventually be used for 
real-time um, decision-making uh, throughout that area uh, as the Corps tries to determine which gates to, uh, to, to manage and, and, and put up and down as events are happening. Um, so I'd like to talk maybe a little bit about the two methods we use. We uh, use a level one for all 54 economic reaches, and we use a level two for two of them, which covered about 100 miles of the Arkansas River. Um, so first, uh, I'll talk a little bit about how HAZIS is utilized in HEC FIA to develop the general building stock for level one analysis. Um, the same exact database that builds your GBS in HAZIS is used directly through FIA um, to get values for population, um, structure content values, vehicle values. Okay. Am I? I'm sorry. Great. So for those of you in the back, uh, would just have to pick up in the middle, I guess. Sorry about that. Um, okay. So all this data is generated on a census block level, and uh, the building inventory is actually represented in a point file as opposed to the polygon, which is um, uh, how HAZIS uses its general building stock. And later on, we'll go into a, a little bit more about you know how those difference, differences show in results. But um, first off, uh, we did an agricultural assessment using uh, USDA NAS data set for the spatial source of crops grown in that area. Um, crop loss functions, yield per acre, unit price, and harvest costs were, uh, were provided by the Corps. I won't go into a whole lot of detail on that, but if someone has questions about ag later on, I'd be more than happy to answer them. Um, for the 100 miles of Arkansas River, uh, level two methodology, the Polis Center um, gathered assessor data for eight counties, uh, two counties in Arkansas and six in Oklahoma. Um, we were able to use this data to uh, increase the positional accuracy to the center of parcel level. Um, we were also able to use Hazes's, uh replacement cost per square foot on a census block level for each occupancy type in conjunction with the square footage we got from the assessor data. So now we have, say for Res 1, it's $75 per square foot replacement cost, which we garnered from the HAZIS database and applied that to whatever square footage we had for each Res 1 and so forth and so on for all the occupancy types. Um, and finally, we were able to uh, use the assessed building foundation type to make assumptions on first floor height, which uh, we strongly believe is obviously the uh, third most important variable in, in modeling uh, these level two analyses. Uh, and so uh, having these three values from the assessor, uh, assessor data, obviously we, we feel really increases the accuracy of our results for these two reaches. Um, and finally, for this level two analysis as well, we were able to use what are called uh, arrival and duration grids. And this can be uh, created when you use unsteady state modeling. Um, so for each cell of your 
inundated area. Um, you'll have when it started getting wet, how long it was wet. Uh, this is really helpful for agricultural um, economic losses because some crops, uh, such as strawberries, can be wet for or submerged for up to a day and not experience um, very much losses, whereas the default method of agricultural um, loss estimation assumes that any cell that gets wet, uh, you will lose 100% of that crop that's in the field on that day uh, of flooding. So uh, any questions so far before I close this out? Okay. Um, so finally, I want to talk about uh, the difference. Uh, well, so HAZIS was utilized to validate our level two results uh, in FIA, and uh, I wish I could show you, but both of them found four buildings damaged at exactly $8,945 of losses. Um, so we're very pleased uh, to know that both of these models are, actually the developers of FIA are um, working with some hazards folks. Um, hopefully they're sharing ideas and, and uh, getting to the point where we'll, where we'll all be using you know, the best methods available. Um, but, and then finally, the general building stock method between the two. Uh, you know, FIA, for this one county, it was six buildings for almost $60,000, and Hazes had two buildings for almost $130,000. And, you know, for another county, it could have been flip-flopped as far as over or an estimation. The reasons for those differences, I mean, just to begin with, uh, using a point shape file uh, to represent building inventory versus using a polygon will lead to many, many, you can go down a very long rabbit hole of figuring out why you're gonna have different results for each area. Uh, we put a lot of thought into it. We have a lot of theories and ideas as to how to make this better. Um, hopefully this is a discussion we can all have in the near future. And if you have any questions about that after, please feel free to ask. Um, thanks for your time. Thank you guys asked so many questions. We are running low on time. But I'll just uh, give you a really quick overview. I won't have time to go into the project. If you have any interest in this, please see me or even better, Kevin, about uh, the project, and we can give you more details after this. But basically, a couple months ago, we were lucky enough to have um, a student from Austria come over. He was a research student, and he was working on his master thesis at the Polis Center. So Kevin was able to work with him on Hazus, and his goal was to use Hazus data for a European um, study region and to create a UDF analysis for uh, a study region in Austria. And the bottom line was he was successful. He was able to kind of trick Hazus into using European data and uh, <laughs> He, he had a really good time with it. He has a really incredible detailed presentation that he would be happy to share with anyone. We can certainly get you in touch with his contact information. And again, um, 
thank you for your time, and we would be happy to talk with you about details of any of these projects following the presentation. Yes, sir. Uh, we do have, well, I don't know, does anyone have questions for any of the presenters that have been up before us this morning? Okay. Uh, my question is, um, Caroline, have you had any success with CDMS being able to uh, generate uh, 